Welcome to the podcast of Sound Medicine, Public Radio's weekly magazine about medicine and health. I'm your host, Barbara Lewis. This free podcast is made possible by Indiana University, Purdue University, Indianapolis, Indiana's premier urban health and life sciences campus, IUPUI, fulfilling the promise. I'm Barbara Lewis. This week on Sound Medicine. Women are undertreated and underserved. We know that. Why more American women than men die of heart disease every year. Plus, dealing with chronic health anxiety. You're always worried about the worst. It's not easy to live that way. Sometimes we use the word catastrophizing. The safety net for children's health care could be canceled this year. As healthcare spending goes, it's shockingly cheap. Why insurance won't cover an effective treatment for pain pill addiction. If the diagnosis is addiction, insurance will not cover methadone. Crowdsourcing comes to health care costs. Our effort is another attempt to just crack open a window on the health care costs. And we continue the story of how a daughter's brain injury changed her father. As she lay there battered, her hair disheveled and crusted with blood, I experienced her as a strong-willed and joyous child she had been. That's all coming up next on Sound Medicine. Sound Medicine is produced by WFYI in association with Indiana University and the IU School of Medicine and is presented in part by IUPUI, fulfilling the promise. Welcome to Sound Medicine, Public Radio's weekly news magazine about medicine and health. I'm Barbara Lewis. We begin this week with your heart, women's hearts to be more precise. My first guest says that when it comes to heart disease, women are undertreated and underserved. And because the symptoms that women experience aren't what we often think of when we consider heart problems, cardiovascular disease can be easily overlooked. Dr. Kevin Campbell is a cardiologist in North Carolina who is trying to do something about the disparities in care. Women are often misdiagnosed, underdiagnosed, and remain undiagnosed oftentimes when they present with symptoms consistent with heart disease. Mm -hmm. So, but how does the burden of heart disease in men and women compare in terms of how many have it and how many die from it each year? You know, it's interesting. If you look at epidemiological studies, the incidence of heart disease is very similar in both men and women. However, in the U.S., more women than men die of heart disease every single year. So what sort of factors contribute to heart disease in women then? So risk factors for heart disease are consistent among the genders, but they are high blood pressure, diabetes, smoking or tobacco abuse, obesity, high cholesterol, and then having a family history of heart disease can also give you an increased risk of having heart disease as an adult. So are the symptoms like harder to notice in women? I mean, let's talk a little bit about the difference then. Um, Why more women are undiagnosed and what some of the barriers are and the obstacles are? You know, that's a great question. Women are undertreated and underserved. We know that. You know, symptoms in women are very different than symptoms in men. Symptoms in women may include anxiety, feelings of dread, an uneasy feeling, may feel like they have the flu, whereas men can present with chest pain, shortness of breath, nausea, more classic symptoms. And that makes it a little more difficult to sort out, as you can imagine, if a woman comes in with symptoms of flu, what are you going to do with that? Right, or anxiety. I mean, that's a, I, I wouldn't think you're going to start looking for heart disease. 
Exactly. So what you have to do as a healthcare provider is you have to interpret those odd atypical symptoms in the setting of risk, which means you have to actually ask those questions. What are your risks for heart disease? We have to aggressively screen women, and that's a big part of it. Now, you wrote an online piece that offered up the stories of a hypothetical middle-aged man and and woman who both have heart-related events with very different outcomes. Did you base this on your own experience as a cardiologist, and can you walk us through these accounts? I did indeed. For instance, a 50-year-old man may come in to the office. He's a smoker. He's overweight. He has high blood pressure, and he may come in having crushing chest pain and pain that radiates into the neck and jaw. And that man will be immediately diagnosed in the emergency room, quickly rushed to a cardiac catheterization laboratory where we will do a procedure where we open the artery that's causing the heart attack. Conversely, a woman may come in feeling like she's got the flu, just feeling like something's not exactly right. And maybe she's a little anxious and stressed out at home. She may walk into the emergency room and be given things for anxiety, and no one even asks, does she have a family history? Is she hypertensive? Does she have diabetes? And that may be the first presentation with heart disease, and we completely miss it because we have blinders on, and we don't think about the same things in women. Is that conversation um, starting to change a bit among emergency room physicians that, you know, maybe we should be screening for um, heart problems? You know, that's one of my missions, and I think we are doing a better job. If you look at the data back in the early 2000s, we were even further apart in terms of gender disparities in care, and we're making strides towards offering therapies to women at a closer rate to men. I think part of it, though, has to do with empowering women to take control of their own health care. In other words, making sure they understand what their risk factors are and engage with the physician in modifying those risk factors. If you do that, you're more likely to get care when you come to the emergency room because you're going to tell that doctor, hey, I've got three risk factors for coronary disease. Make sure you check my blood test and make sure you check my EKG, even though my symptoms are odd. Yeah, and there I was singling out the emergency room doctors when really you need to talk about primary care doctors, OBGYNs. You know, where does it usually start? I mean, where, where should it start for women being screened for heart problems? You know, I think primary care is a big part of this, and I think that one thing that we've noticed is that a lot of women only see an OBGYN and don't bother seeing an internist or family doctor, and the OBGYNs are forced to provide some primary care. So I actually reached out about five years ago to OBGYN physicians in my community and across the nation and tried to educate them about heart disease and help them develop quick and easy screening tools. And I think that's made a substantial difference, and I think we need to continue to involve OBGYN physicians in this type of screening. Even though they're very busy with women's health issues, this is still killing more women than breast cancer and uterine cancer combined. We're speaking with Dr. Kevin Campbell. He's a cardiologist based in Raleigh, North Carolina. We're talking about ways that women and their doctors can be more vigilant about recognizing and treating heart disease. What advice do you have for women in terms of staying aware of their risk factors and noticing the signs of a heart attack? Great question. I think absolutely education and awareness are key. Women need to inform themselves of what these risk factors are. They need to talk to their moms and dads and sisters and brothers and find out what the family history is. Then they need to find a primary care doctor who will listen to them, 
who will engage with them and won't blow them off as anxious or disturbed or what have you and actually work with them as a team to modify risk factors. I was just imagining if I was asked to go to the emergency room every time I felt anxious or I felt like I had like flu symptoms, I mean, how do you know when you really should go? I mean, as a woman, you're thinking, really? Anxiety? I'm, I'm supposed to go to the ER? No, I would not say that. I think mm-hmm. what you have to do is start with that primary care doctor or that OBGYN and say, what is my lifetime risk for heart disease? There's something called the Framingham score, which is based on lots of data that we've collected over the years where you assign points based on risk factors, and it can give you a calculation of what your lifetime risk is. If you're someone in the low-risk category and you're having atypical symptoms, I wouldn't go to the emergency room. If you're someone in a high-risk category with atypical symptoms, I'd be very aggressive about treating that. So I think it's all about interpreting weird atypical symptoms in the setting of risk and putting those two things together. One way to start a conversation with your primary care doctor may be to print out your Framingham score and say, hey, this is what I came up with. What do you think about that? What is my risk? Do I need a stress test? Should I modify some of my lifestyle and behaviors? So I think it's all about starting a conversation. Mm-hmm. And then again, of course, Dr. Campbell, then we dread the, the follow-up conversation, which is to change a bunch of things that we do. <laughs> exactly. You know, it's very difficult to modify behavior. You know, I struggle with it, too. You know, we all, particularly when we're in our 40s, we have to, our metabolic rate slows a couple of percent per decade. So we really have to start exercising more to maintain body weight. We have to be careful of all the yummy things that we eat because the yummy things often are very bad for us in our waistline. And as our waistline expands, our risk for heart disease expands. Well, Dr. Kevin Campbell, thank you so much for talking with me on Sound Medicine. Thanks so much for having me. Have a great day. Dr. Kevin Campbell is an assistant professor of cardiology at the University of North Carolina Medical School. He's the author of Women and Cardiovascular Disease, Addressing Disparities in Care. By the way, he mentioned the Framingham Risk Assessment as one way to gauge your chance of a heart attack. Well, we posted a link to that questionnaire. It's now on our website. Just go to soundmedicine.org. Dr. Campbell raised an interesting point, that if women's heart disease is so difficult to pin down, how does a woman know for sure if she's responding to symptoms or worrying unnecessarily? Dr. Kurt Kronke has made a study of what used to be called hypochondria. He told me that doctors have strategies for dealing with patients who have chronic health anxiety. When you go into the doctor, the doctor can do the history and physical, decide if tests are indicated. In most people, uh, that health anxiety will resolve as the symptom goes away. A smaller group of people have chronic health anxiety. In other words, they have a lot of symptoms over time. They're always worried about the symptoms. They're always worried it could be something serious. That person should probably have one doctor they follow. The doctor could get a test for a new symptom but not retest. And there's actually treatments for chronic health anxiety, like uh, cognitive behavioral therapy and, and actual treatments for it. So I think probably reassurance by the doctor, regular follow-up, and some specific kinds of treatment. So um, is there a way for a, a patient to know when you've kind of crossed that line from normal health anxiety to chronic health anxiety? I would say that if it comes up with different symptoms over time, so like it's headache this six months and back pain six months later, so if it's certainly more than two or three symptoms over time, because there's unlikely one disease to explain it, and I would say that if 
after you get an evaluation by a doctor, you remain worried and you get repeated evaluations, those are two clues. Okay. And does usually, and the people who have chronic um, health anxiety, are they usually told by either their physician or a loved one <laughs> diagnosed that way rather than um, self-diagnosed? It sometimes becomes apparent to others before it does because the person's really worried. So it may become more noticed by a loved one or a doctor first who has to bring it up. You have to bring it up sensitively because that's why the word hypochondriasis went away. It had a lot of negative connotations. But uh, some people are prone to be really worried about illness. And uh, nowadays we call that health anxiety. If it's chronic, it's chronic health anxiety. And I think maybe the doctor or the loved one needs to bring it up. Is there any harm that can be done by having health anxiety? I mean, can you be harming yourself either through psyching yourself out with this or, or getting too many tests? Or what, what might be the downside of all that? Yeah, so I guess for one, we'd use the uh, technical term iatrogenic. So you may get too many tests and you may get too many medications and you may get too many treatments. And that's separate from the cost, but that's, there's that. Uh, and the second is just uh, the internal distress the patient feels because, you know, sometimes we use the word catastrophizing. They're all, you're always worried about the worst. It's not easy to live that way. You have a lot of anxiety with it, and that's very distressing. Can that result in physical symptoms? I mean, just the anxiety itself? Yeah. So it's that same relationship. When you have a lot of anxiety, or we call psychological distress, it can lead to just a lot of physical symptoms like uh, headaches and uh, trouble sleeping and uh, fatigue and uh, irritable gastrointestinal complaints. So yes. So it feeds itself then, right? Because that's exactly how you described chronic health anxiety of people coming in and six months having the headache, six months having... It's a circular thing. Yeah. So, so the distress or anxiety about whether your health is problematic can cause physical symptoms. The physical symptoms increase your health anxiety and then it becomes a vicious circle. What patients don't like to hear and it's been studied is everything's normal. Because <laughs> yeah. that means it's not normal. They're not feeling well. Sometimes we say you're prone to experiencing a lot of symptoms. Your thermostat in the brain that experiences symptom, your amplifier's turned up. So it's a physiological thing you're feeling and you're going to always be prone to that. So we want to move on to management and then say, we want to help you feel better. But I do think you have to offer some explanation, empathize. And then they've also found that maybe some regular visits to the doctor, you know, maybe every two or three months for the first year, so that instead of the crisis building up, you can have some regular visits. This is what we call therapeutic relationship. Dr. Kurt Kronke is a professor of medicine at the Indiana University School of Medicine. High anxiety whenever you're near. High anxiety, it's you that I fear. My heart's afraid. Sound Medicine's coverage of advances in heart health and therapies is presented in part by Roche Diagnostics. Doing now what patients need next. My heart starts to soar once more. High anxiety, it's always the same. I'm Eric Metcalf, and your sound medicine stat is 50. Someday, you might tell your grandkids a story about wealthy men risking serious injury to get a ball to the other end of the field, and they won't believe you. 
In a recent survey, 50% of Americans 50? said that if they had a young son, they wouldn't want him to play competitive football. Some evidence suggests that they're acting on their concerns. The number of high school players is down about 15,000 since the 2010 season. The New York Times recently highlighted a wave of high school teams that had to forfeit games and even cancel seasons due to a lack of uninjured players or players in general. Some experts are worried that a shrinking talent pool could even threaten the NFL, which is already struggling with its association with brain trauma. It may still be a bit early for us to talk about pro football going away, but then when was the last time you watched a heavyweight boxing match? That was the number 50, and I'm Eric Metcalf. Coming up, the insurance rules that make it so difficult to get treatment if you're addicted to pain pills. And later, we'll continue our series of essays from Dr. Larry Kripe on how his daughter's very serious accident changed him. I was terrified that her injuries would prevent me from recognizing Millicent that she would be lost to me among the tubes, the monitors, and the hustle of the intensive care unit. You're listening to Sound Medicine. Underwriting for Sound Medicine's health news headlines comes from Marion University College of Osteopathic Medicine. More information at marion.edu slash medical school. I'm Jill Dittmeyer with this week's health news headlines. The Department of Health and Human Services reported this week that nearly 10 million Americans are now enrolled in Obamacare. That's past the goal of 9.5 million signups by the deadline for this year, February 15th. More global generosity to report this week. Public and private donors from around the world stepped up and pledged a record $7.5 billion to the Gavi Alliance, which immunizes children around the world. Britain led the way with $1.5 billion pledged. The U.S., including the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, offered $800 million. Gavi plans to spend $10 million over the next five years to offer childhood immunizations. Yo-yoing weight after menopause seems to play a role in a woman's bone health. A new study found those who lost 5% of their body weight showed a greater risk of breaking a hip, while those who gained 5% were more likely to fracture a hand, arm, or leg. Girls who drink more sugary beverages tend to get their periods earlier. The Harvard School of Public Health followed 5,600 girls aged 9 to 14. Those who drank more than two sugary drinks a day had their first period several months earlier than those who only drank two sugary beverages a week. Early onset of puberty can be a risk factor for depression and even breast cancer later in life. And it's no surprise that over one-third of the U.S. adult population is obese, but a new report says over half of all pets in the U.S. are also getting fatter. And while a tubby-tabby may be cute, vets say plump pets fall victim to the same risks as their overweight owners. More troubles with arthritis, diabetes, and heart disease. So go find that leash. Reporting for Sound Medicine News, I'm Jill Dittmeyer. I'm Barbara Lewis. Health insurance coverage has been in the news a lot lately, if you haven't noticed. We have two stories on that topic for you now. First, the Affordable Care Act continues to enroll more adults. There's an older insurance program for children that could come to an end this year if Congress doesn't reauthorize it. So we asked our health policy analyst, Dr. Aaron Carroll, to explain what the CHIP program is and what it means for children's health care. So not too long ago, back in the 80s and 90s, the rates of uninsurance amongst children were 
pretty much comparable to those of adults. And while we can make a solid argument that perhaps, you know, adults are making a conscious choice about whether to be insured or not or, or making choices to spend money on some things or others, it's hard to blame children. I mean, we can't really tell them to work harder and go make more money. And so a number of different policies were put in place over those two decades, specifically two big policies, to try to reduce uninsurance amongst children. The bigger of them was, was SCHIP, or the State Children's Health Insurance Plan, which raised the rates at which we would provide children with public insurance. Instead of just sort of doing Medicaid up to 100 or 133 percent of the poverty line, it significantly increased the level of income that families could make and still we would provide insurance to children. And it really made a monstrous difference in how many kids were uninsured. And the number of children who are uninsured dropped dramatically uh, compared to those of adults, so, such that uh, with the exception of the elderly, you know, of course, all of whom pretty much get Medicare, children are perhaps the most highly insured group in America. So what is happening now in Congress? As I understand it, funding for CHIP is scheduled to run out at the end of this fiscal year. Yes. So it ha CHIP has to be reauthorized. It's not a forever program like Medicare. Um, and the last time it was reauthorized, uh, there was a debate going on about, do we need it anymore now that the Affordable Care Act is in place? And a number of politicians thought, yes, we still do. We need to make a transition. Uh, we don't want to disrupt things too much to begin with. And so CHIP was reauthorized through uh, next year, through twenty or through this year now, 2015. And it is at that point going to sort of be out of funding. And the question will be at that point whether we continue to reauthorize it or whether we let it go and hope that the Affordable Care Act and the Medicaid expansion pick up the slack. Okay. So let's take the arguments uh, for keeping it uh, funded and for just going to the exchanges. Well, the, the arguments for keeping it funding um, have a number uh, of, of reasons to sort of say that that's the case. Mm -hmm. The first being that CHIP is very generous. Uh, it, it can have an actuarial value of you know over 90%, meaning that um, people who get CHIP or kids who have CHIP, the vast, vast majority of healthcare expenses are paid for by the government and not put on individuals. You have to remember that you know a silver plan in the exchange has an actuarial value, say, of 70%, and a bronze plan could be 60%, meaning that uh, families will be responsible for much more of the healthcare expenses than they would be if kids remained on CHIP. Um, there are also differences with respect to networks and who takes CHIP and who and versus who takes some of the plans that come in um, through some of the exchanges. And so there could be disruptions as well amongst providers for kids to get insurance. You have to remember that the narrow networks that are so popular amongst you know insurance companies and wonks for trying to drive down healthcare spending, there sometimes aren't that many providers that cater to children. There may be only one children's hospital in the state or you know a number of pediatric specialists. And if they don't accept that plan that's being offered in the exchange that people have decided to buy, then kids' access will be significantly reduced. So it sounds like there's a danger and, and a very real danger of uh, children being uninsured, a lot more children being uninsured because, you know, for a variety of reasons, it may be that the, the parents just can't afford the coverage. Uh, and we'll go, you know, and, and from there, I mean, you named it a number of pitfalls. Yeah, I mean, uninsured and also what we would call underinsured, meaning that even if they do have a plan, uh, the amount that it will cost them out of pocket to get care can hurt the family's finances or result in them not getting care. It's also important to point out what we like to call the family glitch, where 
The way it works right now is that the jobs are mandated or they will suffer an employer penalty in the future to offer health insurance and have it be partially subsidized to their employees. They're not mandated to offer it to their employees' families. And if you are offered a plan for yourself by your employer and you say, no, instead I want to go buy something on the exchange, you can't get a subsidy which means that if I, you offered me a plan, for instance, um, and I said, no, I need to go buy a family plan, and I went to the exchange, even if I made a little bit of money, I could get no subsidy, which means that there are people who won't be subsidized to buy family plans or plans for their children because they're offered an individual plan at work and not a family plan. I will tell you that as, as healthcare spending goes, it's shockingly cheap. I mean, kids are very cheap um, in general. And even when we talk about Medicaid or SCHIP, we're talking in the you know single digits to perhaps low tens of billions of dollars a year versus the hundreds of billions of dollars a year that we're going to spend on Medicare every year. So reauthorizing these is a number greater than zero, but it is nowhere near what we usually talk about when we talk about health care spending. Well, you keep an eye on, on uh, Washington. What do you think is going to happen? I mean, is I, there political will to, to renew it? I, I'm, I Usually when it comes to kids, people usually get behind it, especially because when we talk again about how much money it costs versus um, how much benefit you're going to get out of it, CHIP is relatively cheap. The one thing that's going to be difficult and different this time around is that there's a reasonable argument to be made that, you know, once we put the Affordable Care Act in place so that states wouldn't have to be responsible for sort of state health insurance plans like this. And, you know, this the ACA was supposed to save, you know, states money by transitioning a lot of these kids onto exchange plans uh, or to plans through people's jobs. I, I, I think that we will need to fix the family glitch, though, in order to make that argument hold weight. Um, because as long as we can't you know, get people subsidies to buy their kids' plans or to buy plans for their families. They can only get those subsidies for themselves, and they can't get them at all. If employers are only offering plans to individuals, it'll be hard to make an argument that the ACA is really covering kids as well as it should. Dr. Aaron Carroll, we'll see how this one turns out. Thank you. Dr. Aaron Carroll is a professor of pediatrics at the Indiana University School of Medicine, and he also runs the Center for Health Policy and Professionalism Research. Another group that finds it hard to get insurance coverage are people who are dealing with addictions to prescription drugs or addiction to alcohol. The National Institutes of Health estimates that between 5 and 8 million Americans take opioids for long-term pain management. That has led to an epidemic of prescription drug addiction. Dr. Andy Chambers is a psychiatrist who specializes in caring for people with both mental illness and addiction issues. And he explained one of the rules, and it's a head spinner, that makes it difficult to treat people who are addicted to painkillers. If you have pain, if your diagnosis is pain, then insurance will, will readily cover methadone for the treatment of pain. But if the diagnosis is addiction, insurance will not cover methadone for opiate maintenance treatment of addiction. This is very problematic because it discourages doctors from making even the diagnosis of addiction in the first place. 
which discourages the patient, the addict, from really feeling like that's something that needs to be addressed. Exactly. If you move to other drugs, um, similar kinds of problems. For example, nicotine dependence. You know, and realize nicotine addiction is all things accounted for. M- many experts would, would assign that to be the number one cause of premature illness and death in the United States because nicotine addiction causes so many diseases. It causes half of all cancer deaths, most heart attacks, most strokes, chronic lung disease, and huge medical morbidity and mortality and health care costs. And yet, in Indiana, the best-known treatment for nicotine addiction, the best pharmacological treatment for nicotine addiction, uh, varenicline, is only covered for three months. The evidence is clear that the longer you're on this medication, the more likely you will succeed in establishing recovery from nicotine addiction. Yeah, the insurance plan will only cover three months. I've had patients who are being admitted to the hospital um, with bronchitis, a patient who is undergoing a $10,000 cancer workup for the possibility of lung cancer due to smoking. And while insurance was covering that workup, involving radiology, uh, high-paid specialists, investigating the possibility of cancer, they at the same time were not willing to cover the treatment of nicotine addiction under my care as an addiction psychiatrist. This is something that extends also to alcohol. Alcohol addiction, one very serious problem with that particular form of addiction is alcohol withdrawal. Alcohol withdrawal is potentially one of the most lethal types of drug withdrawal syndromes that there is. People die from alcohol withdrawal all the time. It really is a medical emergency that requires, in many cases, an inpatient stabilization. However, there's just no healthcare reimbursement for that. So that puts us in a situation where we have to attempt to detoxify patients on an outpatient basis. So now we're using medications that, if mixed with alcohol, could be very dangerous, but yet we don't have an inpatient bed to bring them into to actually do a supervised medically controlled detoxification. It seems, though, and I, you know, and, and this is just from outside looking in, that yeah. that has kind of changed over the years. You know, it used to be that treatment centers, you know, was a 30 days and you would go in and there was detox facilities and there were kind of standalone clinics or hospitals devoted to this. And you don't see that so much anymore. That's right. And I can explain a little bit of what that is. There was an observation that detoxification alone does not treat addiction. So someone can be addicted to alcohol and need detoxification medically, and you can bring them in and detoxify them and do that over and over and over and never really treat the addiction. So after a while, insurance companies in the treatment community began to say, what's the point of doing detoxification? Now we're beginning to actually develop treatments that do address the long-term addiction, that do potentially allow full recovery from alcohol addiction. Well, now that we have those capabilities, we still need detox because you got to get them to stop drinking at some point. 
So now they're they're really you know it's very interesting because now that we've kind of taken care of the need for better treatments for long term alcohol addiction, we actually now do need more facilities to bring people in because you still got to get them to stop at some point to start the long-term treatment. And once you lose insurance coverage for a certain treatment, it's harder to get it back later on, probably. I I can hear the frustration. Uh, I'm wondering if there's some hope that things might be changing or could change. There certainly is hope. I think that you know, a silver lining with the current opioid addiction epidemic is that it's drawing attention to the need for psychiatry and addiction medicine and addiction psychiatry to be a part of healthcare. I think that stakeholders from all over the place are beginning to be part of this conversation and are beginning to emphasize the need not only for treatment, but expert treatment and, and treatment that's insured. One of the points emphasized in the healthcare reform movement is parity. There is an awareness that one reason our healthcare costs are so out of control that we are spending a lot on treating the consequences of behavioral health problems instead of treating the behavioral health problems themselves. So I think that there is a realization, for example, that we really need to treat addictions up front and early to prevent the medical consequences later. And I think that there's lots of reason to be hopeful that a lot of the reforms and and universal health care coverage will allow that to actually take place. Dr. Andy Chambers, thank you so much. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Dr. Andrew Chambers is an associate professor of psychiatry and the director of the Addiction Psychiatry Fellowship Program at the IU School of Medicine. Time now for this week's Sound Medicine Checkup. When it comes to getting kids to eat a healthy school lunch, it may have a lot to do with timing. Here's Jill Dittmeyer. We've been looking at school lunches and how we can get kids to eat more fruits and vegetables for quite a while. There's been a lot of push to get more fruits and vegetables into the lunch, and it's been met with a bit of resistance because a lot of those fruits and vegetables have been going into the garbage and just just sort of being wasted. Dr. David Just and his team of researchers at Cornell University theorized that the time those foods were served might have an effect on a child's appetite. They found seven elementary schools that were willing to make a change in their school schedule, offering recess first, then lunch. Ended up getting about 23,000 observations on kids and what they were eating. And there was about a a 54% increase in consumption of fruits and vegetables. That's a lot of berries and Brussels sprouts. I was expecting, you know, we could probably push maybe a quarter of kids to eat a little bit more, but that, that's 54% that are now consuming a, uh, a serving of fruits and vegetables that weren't before, and that's, that's a pretty astoundingly large change. That increased food consumption is good news for both students and school food costs. And here's a really simple thing we can do to really reduce that waste so that that the fruits and vegetables we're making available actually reach their desired end, um, that the kids actually do eat them, and it it does some good. And a lesson for parents. 
if our kids are going about snacking, that it's after some real vigorous activity rather than before, because that's going to lead them to be more likely to say yes when you offer the strawberries or you offer the, the carrots rather than, you know, waiting around for a granola bar or something. Reporting for Sound Medicine, I'm Jill Dittmeyer. Moving to the country, I'm gonna eat a lot of peaches. I'm moving to the country, I'm gonna eat me a lot of peaches. I'm moving to the country, I'm gonna eat a lot of peaches. I'm moving to the country, I'm gonna eat a lot of peaches. You can listen to Sound Medicine anytime by signing up for our free weekly podcast. It's at our website, soundmedicine.org. Plus, we're at Stitcher Radio, SoundCloud, Swell AM, and iTunes. Just search for Sound Medicine Radio Hour. Sound Medicine is produced by WFYI in association with Indiana University and the IU School of Medicine and is presented in part by IUPUI, fulfilling the promise. Welcome back to Sound Medicine. I'm Barbara Lewis. One of the least transparent parts of the healthcare system is how much things really cost. When you're taken to the ER for an emergency procedure, it is hard to shop around for the best price for those x-rays. But why can't you shop for a scheduled procedure, such as a screening mammogram? My next guest is part of a project to make those prices more transparent by using crowdsourcing. Two California public radio stations, plus the website clearhealthcost.com, have set up a site to allow people to report what they paid for common medical tests. Lisa Alafiris is editor of the State of Health blog at KQED in San Francisco. Lisa, welcome to Sound Medicine. It's great to be here. In the summer of 2014, you launched a program called Price Check. You started by asking about the costs of mammograms, lower back MRIs, IUD birth control devices, and diabetes test strips. Why these? We were asking people to do a lot. We were asking our audience will you share the price that you paid? People needed to get any bills that they had or maybe just their explanation of benefits and follow our form on our site and submit that data. So we wanted to ask for things that were commonly done and also were pretty much standalone procedures. You wouldn't get a bill with a whole bunch of different prices, say if you had an operation of some kind, like a hernia repair that might have numerous different items. But for the things we asked for, for screening mammograms, those are done 38 million times a year, and women are very engaged in healthcare, and we thought they would share their prices, and they did. So is that what you get the most responses from? Did you have one of all these that you had the most data? As the project went along, uh, we had quite a few shares on mammograms, but also lower back MRI was also very strong. And then people started sharing their prices for other things, too. So our form was designed to accept any prices from anywhere in the country. So you've gotten a lot of reports on the prices that consumers are paying for the tests and procedures, if you said. I mean, what did you learn? Part of the reason we wanted to do this is because contracts between insurers and providers are sealed. Neither side can say, you know, doctors cannot say what they're paid and insurers cannot say what they're paying the doctor. So we thought that by asking people to share their prices, that we would be able to see exactly what different insurers paid for different procedures. And indeed, we found a range. This was a project in the state of California. And we found, for example, that prices paid for screening mammograms ranged from 128 to $694. 
for lower back MRIs. They ranged from $467 to $1,567. And I might add that people in the know in healthcare are aware that the price charged often doesn't have any relevance to the price that is actually paid. And so I really want to stress that these are not the so-called charge master prices. These are actual data from our users. This is crowdsourced data. And they shared the price they were charged. And usually the price charged was higher than the price actually paid. So we could see the price charged and the price paid. And you can see the variation for yourself, 128 to $694 for a screening mammogram. That's tremendous variety. And we're only beginning to explore in this country why that kind of variation exists. Yeah, and the cost isn't necessarily linked to quality. So what information does price check add to the conversation, do you think, about quality versus price? Well, we were not surveying on quality. We, As you say, the price and quality are not linked. That was one of the questions we got quite a bit. People said, well, gee, I don't really think I should be shopping for health care in the same way I shop for toilet paper or a new computer. But the problem is, in America, we tend to equate higher cost with higher quality. But in healthcare, that's not true. So what are we getting for this extra money? One woman told our partner in Los Angeles at KPCC, my mammogram was $600 more than another place in the Los Angeles area. I think my technician was really just very nice, but I don't think she was $600 more nice. Then this is what we're getting at, is we're trying to shine a light on this, this cost variation, both to help people and to help drive these moves for greater transparency in the cost of health care. Do you think people are able to get prices up front? Could you really shop around now, the way things are set up? We are really behind the idea that people should ask what it costs every single time they engage with health care. They should ask, and if somebody can't tell them, they should keep asking. We also had reports in our database of people going in for, say, this happened with the lower back MRI. Someone was about to be charged $1,850. But that person had a high deductible health plan, a deductible of $7,500. So this person said they talked to an employee in the office, And this person said, well, if you pay up front and you don't report this procedure to your insurer, we'll give you the cash price. We'll give you the self-pay price. And that was only $580. So this person saved almost $1,300 by agreeing to pay it up front. So you can ask. So for people, especially people with high deductible plans, it really pays to call around when you have something that you can schedule. In a lot of places, if you pay cash up front for something, you can get a discount. But the trade-off is then it does not count against your deductible. And the further trade-off is is that doctors and hospitals are not supposed to permit that. If a patient has insurance, they're supposed to take the insurance and not offer this cash option. If you're paying for something on your own, that you should definitely call around and say, how much do you charge? How much do you charge? Because our effort is another attempt to crack open a window on the healthcare costs because the more information consumers have, the greater power they will have in trying to understand what the costs are and how they can save money. I'm speaking with Lisa Alaferis, editor of the State of Health blog at KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. We're talking about the Price Check Project. There are doctors who understand that Healthcare costs um, in this country are a significant national issue, and that the absurdity around this crazy quilt 
so-called system we have is not benefiting anyone. And they are often wanting to partner with us in helping to get more information out there. Okay, so Lisa, if the doctors are on board to want to make this more transparent and to show this wide variety in prices, when it comes to the lack of transparency and want to keeping it the way the status quo, why would anybody want that? I think in general, across the board, there's an acceptance that greater transparency is coming, but how to get there is really a challenge. And the goal of transparency, I would imagine, is to lower the cost. I would say the goal is that consumers have complete information. And we've seen this in other industries. When there's more transparency, I mean, it's go way back to the 50s, and it took an act of Congress to change pricing information on cars, and that there was no manufacturer-suggested retail price before this act of Congress. The airline industry was deregulated. People can say what they want about what it is to travel now, but... Most of the data shows that prices are lower because there's greater transparency, and probably for other reasons too, but prices are lower than they would otherwise have been. Healthcare costs have been skyrocketing. They've been rising faster than the cost of inflation until only very recently have they started to slow down in their growth rate. So this is one effort. We're not claiming that our project is going to solve the healthcare cost crisis in this country. We're saying it's one effort and we invite people to participate. The more data we have, the more useful the tool is for other people. Lisa Alaferis, editor of the State of Health blog at KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. Thank you so much for talking with me. It's really been a pleasure. It's great to talk to you. Thanks for having me on. Dr. Larry Kripe continues his story now about the terrible accident his daughter suffered two years ago. Millicent Kripe was attending one of the parties after the Obama inauguration when she fell down three flights of stairs and sustained a serious brain injury. Dr. Kripe picks up his story in a Washington hospital. As I was sitting in the intensive care unit watching my daughter breathe, I realized time has width as well as length. The length of time was marked by the ever-changing bright red numbers of the clock at the head of her bed. The length of time varied. If I watched the monitors that displayed the spikes of the electrical activity of her heart or the peaks and valleys signaling the rise and fall of her chest too closely, then time passed slowly. If I willed myself to ignore the clock and tracings and instead watched the comings and goings outside Millicent's room, then time passed quickly. But as I was sitting with Millicent and my attention drifted away from the monitors, I discovered the width of time. As she lay there battered, her left arm motionless, her hair disheveled and crusted with blood, I experienced her as a strong-willed and joyous child she had been, as a young woman she was before her fall, anxious to return to college after working for the president's re-election campaign. Less distinctly, I was also aware of the future when, as an older woman, she would live a life different in large and small ways from the life she had planned before the fall. 
There is mercy in wide time. During my long drive to the hospital in Washington, D.C., I was terrified that her injuries would prevent me from recognizing Millicent, that she would be lost to me among the tubes, the monitors, and the hustle of the intensive care unit. I was afraid the present would overwhelm the past. In the length of time, the past recedes into the chaos and uncertainty of a life-threatening injury. With wide time, it remains. Perhaps I am merely offering a metaphor for the way in which I protected myself from the reality, but I don't think so, because there was also terror in wide time. It was in the width of time I fully experienced the tragedy of her fall. I could not prevent myself from imagining some new and unsettled future so different from what we assumed would be true up until the moment of Millicent's fall. I was fully aware of what we, what she might lose. Physicians, myself included, communicate a studied indifference to the passage of time. When caring for a person with a serious life-threatening condition, we physicians often advise wait and see. We know the time to recovery varies widely, and the path to recovery is often a series of steps forward and backward. We learn to counsel patients and their loved ones to be patient, to not celebrate or despair too soon. As I sat next to Millicent, I had to manage the present, past, and future simultaneously. The experience has led me to think differently about how to speak with people who are critically ill. I remain focused on the present in order to make sure people are fully informed, but I understand the waiting differently now. I believe in order to be truly empathic, to truly imagine what their experience is like, I need to ask about where they go in the width of time during the long hours of waiting. I also look at the photographs people bring to the hospital differently. I used to think the photographs were to inform the doctors and the nurses about who the patient was, but they are to make sure we know who the patient is because we are the futures we imagined as well as the past we have lived. And so, wide time may be a metaphor, but it is essential to making sense of how we respond to tragedy. It is through wide time we grieve fully, honor completely the life we are trying to protect and ultimately restore. Dr. Larry Kripe is a regular contributor to Sound Medicine. He leads the palliative care program at IU Health University Hospital in Indianapolis.
We'll have the conclusion to his story next week. And spoiler alert, it is good news. And that's it for this week's program. Let us know what you think or what you want us to cover by posting a message on our Facebook site or sending us an email to soundmedicine.org. You can subscribe to our free podcast there at iTunes or wherever you find your podcasts. Sound Medicine senior producer is Nora Hyatt. Eric Metcalf prepares our interviews. Chris Lieber records and edits the program, and he chooses our music. Steve Ali of Jazzville Studios wrote our theme music. Carmel Roth is managing editor of Sound Medicine News with help from Andrea Moraskin. And the executive producer is Eric Eggleton. Sound Medicine is a copyrighted 2015 production of the Indiana University Trustees and WFYI, Metropolitan Indianapolis Public Broadcasting Incorporated. All rights reserved. I'm Barbara Lewis, wishing you good health. Sound Medicine is produced by WFYI in association with Indiana University and the IU School of Medicine and is presented in part by IUPUI, fulfilling the promise. Thanks for listening. For more information about anything you heard on this podcast, please go to our website, soundmedicine.org. I'm Barbara Lewis, wishing you good health.